Hello and welcome to another episode of Ensure and Certain Hope, a podcast about Jesus, the church, faith, and other things. I am the Reverend Jedediah Fox, the rector of the Church of the Redeemer in Kenmore, Washington, and your host. In today's podcast, we're going to be finishing up our long five-episode discussion of church history with a very brief synopsis of some of the important movements in the church in the 20th century and an outlook on the church in the third millennium and how we might best be that movement of Jesus for another thousand years, if needs be. Thank you for being with us today. Let's dive in. When Christianity gets to the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, the beginning of the modern age, we arrive at a point where the you have the rise of an idea within different parts of Christianity that is independent of whether you're on the more communal or individual side of the church or the more Calvinist or Armenian side of the church called progressivism. And progressivism in the church context is this idea that slowly but surely, by and by, the church is winning, things are getting better, and that eventually God is just going to win because God is God. And and, and everything's just going to get better, and humans are going to make everything better with God's help, slowly but surely. And through the very beginning of the 20th century, this is sort of borne out in part through all of the social movements that are happening uh, in terms of union union activity and workers' rights and a lot of these movements that have a uh, faith component to them, particularly in Christianity. This, this tide of an idea of progressivism in, in, in Christian theology and the theology of the church, both in North America and in Europe— uh, is sort of being buoyed up by because things seem to be going so well, and and the goals of the church, you know, paying a living wage, finding justice for people, giving people dignity and justice in their lives generally, that seems to be working. And then you have the First World War, and that blows the whole idea of progressivism all to hell, because. The horrors of trench warfare and modern mechanized warfare put the lie to the idea of progressivism that slowly but surely things are getting better. This, this war, this war that's supposed to end all war is not better. And in the midst of this, in in sort of the interregnum between the First and the Second World War, no one knows really what to think. And then after the Second World War, you have, the, you have 
two important and prominent theological strands that um, have been have been building alongside progressivism that really come to the fore. And the first of those is the ecumenical movement, and that is the idea that that Christians should all be on the same side. They should all want to be, we're, we're all working towards the same goal as Christians, and we, we're all on the same side, and we should all try to get along, which on its face is a lovely sentiment. Uh, and, you know, and this starts at the end of the 19th century, just like progressivism, uh, but really sort of gains a little bit more momentum as progressivism wanes in the face of uh, worldwide war twice. And the other strain of this is that 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 begins really to rise up after the first world war is this sort of nationalismly entwined christianity and you see the the detriments of this first in germany um with with the Lutheran Church in Germany, the non-confessing church in Germany, and that and the, the non-confessing church it's important to call it the non-confessing church because there are, there's more than one church in Germany, in in this this nation state of Germany now because we have nation states of Germany, but the non-confessing church Lutheran Church in Germany is the church that goes along with Nazism, that gives a fig leaf cover to Nazism just as Southern Christianity in the Southern United States gave fig leaf cover to chattel enslavement of people of African descent. And this is by no means the last time that this will happen, right? This is, this is the first, not necessarily the first, but uh, a, a really important example of nationalism intertwined with Christianity, but it is certainly not the last one as we well know. Uh, but this remains uh, an idea in in greater and to a greater and lesser extent, not just in Germany, but all over the all over the 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 world after the Second World War, in part because of the influence of uh, the Leninist communism that is practiced in Russia and the USSR after the First World War, which rejects in toto religion. And so to oppose that after the Second World War and through the, the entirety of the Cold War, you have this strange alliance of religious faith, particularly Christianity, and democracy that is um, made to seem normal in democratic circles, particularly in, in the United States, that, um, that the taking seriously of Paul's words about being good citizens where, of whatever state you find yourself in, particularly if they are democratic and allow for uh, the free expression of religion, <coughs> United States, uh, that this is God-ordained and should be the way it works. And you should support um, governments that allow the free exercise of your religion. And you should do everything in your power to uh, try to help them and make them better and to essentially sanctify them. And this is 
it, uh, this movement, which uh, is very much in vogue in, from the 50s through at least the 70s, uh, probably uh, and, and probably dies in the United States its first death uh, with the travails of having Richard Nixon as a president. Uh, th- this is uh, what, what some historians have called late stage uh, Christendom. This idea that, that the goal of Christians was to make Christian nations, which began with Constantine way back in the fourth century and has more or less been a, been a raison d'etre of the church ever since. Up until about the 1970s, when when when, um, when at least in America we realized that that that's not a thing, that's that's not going to work. Um, in the words of uh, theologian Christian theologian Stanley Hauerwas, Caesar, that is the secular authority, is always going to do what is best for Caesar, and probably cannot be sanctified into something that we would know as Christendom. And that's the, the last movement that happens uh, really beginning in the seventies and that we're still wrestling with, you know, as we get into not history, but um, present tense Christianity is, is the, the realization of the death of Christendom and the, the idea that we cannot sanctify our secular powers. We cannot create Christian nations, Christian nation states. We've been trying to do it since 313, and we have yet to succeed. And so maybe it's time to give it up as a bad job. And so at the dawn of the 21st century... You have, in many ways, at least in the United States, uh, Christianity that is uh, having to reinvent itself, reinvent itself uh, within its relationship with the greater culture, reinvent itself in the ways that it thinks about itself and and its work. And, and in it, you see, in some ways, the greatest Achilles heel of uh, this group of people that we call the church. And that is um, the the innate ability of humans to take something like the church, this organization of people following Jesus, and to turn its focus to the continuing life of the church rather than Jesus, rather than the the role and goal that we have been given in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we are left at the beginning of the 20th century uh, in this place where uh, we have the challenge and the opportunity of redefining uh, what the church needs to be focused on and where we leave in many ways church history, even though, yes, we've already gone through 20 years of the 21st century at this point. Uh, But we, you know, uh, maybe still a little bit too close for comfort. Uh, where we leave the church uh, after a few more events, such as the um, the um, the skirmishes, the wars, call them what you use, whatever language that you choose to over 
um, over people of all all sexual and gender orientations <laughs> and their inclusion in the church. Uh, we we leave the area of history and we enter the area of the future, and so the question that faces the church and for and and everyone who is a part of the church is what is the role of the church in the third millennium of its witness how is the church to be the church in the third millennium in its third millennium the church has been around for 2000 years and as we enter it the, the next thousand year cycle possibly um how do we need to reimagine what the church is or get back to the basics the 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 core idea of what the church must and can be in order to most fully realize its purpose because the thing about the church is the church is always going to be finite the church has an end date but there is no winning. No matter what happens, the church will end. Not necessarily, I mean, every, everything will end, except for God and Jesus and us in Jesus. And that includes the church. Because the, the goal of the church was never, never to exist, was never existence, was never life. The church is the means to an end. And that end is Jesus. And so as we think about what it means to be the church in the 21st century, we have to think about being what, in many ways, Elizabeth I called the Church of England in the 16th century, which is Catholic but Reformed. And to that, I would add repentant, because that's an important value for the church, repentance. If you remember when we talked about baptismal vows, there's that second one that I, I love to highlight with people because um, it reminds us of our own fallibility. And where it goes, and whenever you whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. When, not if, you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. So the church in the 21st century, in in my, and this is my opinion. Um, uh, has to think of itself in terms of being Catholic, but reformed and repentant. So what do I mean by this? So uh, what I mean by Catholic, because that obviously is a loaded term, uh, because one denomination of the movement that fo is following behind Jesus, telling the story of God who loves us so much uh, as to send a son to live and die as one of us and make us God's children, one branch of that movement calls themselves Catholic. You know, most of the rest of us refer to them as the Roman Catholic Church. Because what the word Catholic means is universal. So the church and the and in its genesis, this idea of, of a Catholic church is a church that is universally welcoming, a church that invites everyone, a church 
in which no one is excluded for any reason. For any, because of anything in their existence. Now, people can still put themselves outside the church by their actions, but nothing about their existence precludes them from church. Not because they're gay, not because they're women, not because of their gender orientation, nothing. And it is that quality of the church, this universal quality of the church that sometimes we struggle with the most as humans. Because we love, as humans, to define ourselves over and against something or more often someone else. And in doing so, we have a tendency to create false dichotomies. Say, well, you, you can't join my club because I define myself over against you. And if you're part of my club, then, then how am I going to define myself as, a, as what I am not? We have to get beyond that and to think of ourselves all as God's children. And when I say all, I mean all. All having the ability, the opportunity to accept the invitation to be siblings in Christ's, in the movement of Christ toward deeper, meaningful relationship with God. Because that's what this is all about. And that also means that we have to be reformed. We have to be continually reforming, continually evaluating, continually asking the question, is this serving the greater purpose that we are about as a church? Because the purpose of the church, the reason for existence is to be the invitation for all of creation to enter into deeper relationship with the God who created it through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is about. The church is not about existing. It's not about having bake sales. It's not about uh, making sure we have a place to go on Sunday mornings so we're not sitting at home twiddling our thumbs. It's about making sure that everyone can be invited and to represent the kind of relationship between God and creation and creation and itself that God envisions as the pinnacle of God's work. And so to the extent that we are not fulfilling that ultimate goal, because we're humans and we have a tendency to get off target, not surprising, particularly if you've ever watched a four-year-old try to focus on anything. Because we have a tendency to get off target, we have to continually be reforming ourselves, reorienting ourselves. And sometimes it will go beyond simply just re reforming, leaving behind that which isn't serving us anymore, to repenting, to saying we were wrong. 
We messed up. And we must amend our lives and make recompense for the wrong we have done. And if we can do those three things, be Catholic, continually reforming, and when we need to be repentant, then I think we as the church stand the greatest chance of doing what it is we're supposed to be doing, which is being God's kingdom in the midst of the world, representing the end to which God is moving all of creation in Jesus Christ. And that is ultimately the end goal. I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of Ensure and Certain Hope. And until we are together again, may God's blessing be with you. Christ's peace be with you. The Spirit's outpouring be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Keep